1: And welcome to Sakanian the podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seafoot, and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. <laughs> Before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about a couple of charities. Now, these charities are the foundations of a couple of the conversations you're going to hear today. And on the bio on the podcast, I'm going to put their details as well, because it's really important that you seek help when you need it. In the podcast this week, and actually in a lot of the podcasts I do, there may be some certain triggers for you. And I encourage you, if you have noticed that trigger, to go and seek help. The first place is Samaritans.org. They are amazing when it comes to suicide prevention. So if you're feeling a bit distressed, if you're feeling a bit suicidal, please go to samaritans.org website or call them on 116 123. That's 116 123. The second one is Refuge. You can find them online at nationaldahelpline.org.uk or call them on 0808 2247. Refuge is an amazing charity if you have suffered with domestic abuse so that's nationaldahelpline.org.uk and you can call them on 0808 2000 247. And now to tell you about my guest this week. My guest this week you'll know as a star of Celebrity Big Brother, the Year of the Woman back in 2018. She shared a house with Anne Whittacombe, Ashley James, and previous Secure the Secure Guests, India Willoughby and Maggie Oliver. Prior to that, she was an MTV star on not one but two series of X on the Beach alongside Charlotte Crosby, Gaz Beadle, and Kaylee Morris in 2015. But my guest Jess Impiazzi is not just a reality star-turned-influencer. She is so much more. She's an actress after training at Itali Conti with her friend Pixie Lot in the year below her. She's a businesswoman with her own fashion brand, HD Female, and she campaigns to help people who are visually impaired. I'm delighted to say Jessica Impiazzi joins me on Security as she releases her debut memoir, Silver Lining. Jessica, hello.
2: Hello, thank you so much for having me on today.
1: Well, you know how much I'm a fan of yours. So when I knew you had a book a year ago, we knew this was going to happen. It was inevitable we would end up on my podcast and I'd make you do it.
2: 100%. And I, I was always excited for it because I knew we'd, I'd be coming on. So thank you again.
1: <laughs> You're so cute. You're so cute. <laughs> uh, um, I suppose let's start with the book and we'll come back to the book. But there's a lot in the book. I read it cover to cover, obviously. I was texting you all the way through it. Um, there's a lot I want to touch on. But I suppose... The book's called Silver Lining. The best place to start is really on the title because it's very easy to use a pun on your name, but you, you chose the phrase Silver Lining, which we all see as a, almost as a spiritual thing. So what does Silver Lining actually mean to you?
2: Everything, really. I think that's the whole basis of the book is that it was the find the things that you may think are bad, but if we really go into depth in things, you can always pick out a Silver Lining and that that came to me, almost like a brain flash when I was thinking of the title because I know so many people go through things and it's how we use our minds to see what um, we pull out of it and I wanted to write it so that I could find the silver linings and pull it out and you know any trauma any problems we go through in our lives we can use that as a lesson and just a lesson is sometimes a silver lining because you know you're not going to repeat it again. 100%
1: and also you've got the advice and the tools in your toolkit to spread awareness as well so not even that it won't happen just to you again but it won't happen to anyone else
2: yeah and that was a a big thing for me I think whilst I was writing I started it just because I just wanted to write down and and get things out but then as I was going along I thought I really I mean I I think I only wrote about a thousand words at this point and I remember thinking to myself I really hope this can help other people because I thought when I was younger if I could have read something that was really traumatic I think it would have prevented a lot of the issues that I had in my mental health because it kind of shows that, uh, that you know there's a lot of people that go through a lot of trauma and people don't necessarily want to talk about it a lot and I think when we do and we can express it's almost like a a release and I was hoping that people will be able to help or be or, uh, you know read the book and get a release of their own and relate in some way and therefore be able to find their silver linings and their lessons and their growth fruit through everything
1: and that's what an influencer is supposed to do they're supposed to influence the good not the bad you know a couple of months ago we were in lockdown and all we saw were your fellow reality stars going off to dubai and maldives doing paid photo shoots getting themselves papped and not really influencing actually doing detriment to our mental health because we thought why are you there and we can't be there yet what you're doing is talking about the traumas which we'll talk about shortly if that's okay with you and i've already given out the samaritans number and the uh, national domestic helpline number and that's what you should be influencing because you should be going look i'm being on reality tv i'm a tv star yeah i've also had bad things happen to me you're not alone in this and i think that's the thing of you're not alone i will influence that so you don't feel lonely
2: yeah, I think, and also the problem is I think a lot of people are frightened to open up like that because they, they're more interested in getting the likes or the, or the, you know, validation for themselves over the fact that they got loads of likes, but I don't often get that. So, I, you know, I, I put my stuff out in the hope to help someone, and whether that's just one person likes that post, for instance, and that helps them, that's fine for me, that made my day. Um, I I'm not necessarily one that's posting for clickbait or anything. I just want to make sure my influence can help others. And I can't talk for everyone else because everyone's got their own journey and their own their own things going on. So I, I don't tend to like to comment on, you know, if they've gone away. But I do think that this time it's probably not the easiest thing to be watching over and over again. I mean, I, I have seen loads of people on Instagram all on their holidays and I'm, I, I just got a bit baffled by it because I... I pretty sure i'm not even allowed to leave surrey right now (laughs) i don't understand how this
1: has happened well also the thing to remember as well is that you're 32 years old with a lot of life experience whereas there's a lot of reality stars who are a lot more junior than you who are in their early 20s i think the problem is sometimes we think about love island stars for example and we think okay they are a celebrity they've been on tv and we forget actually they're only 19 20, 21 years exactly. old. if we think about the mistakes we made when we were their age we would never have done certain things at our age now
2: yeah then you know what this is exactly what i was just about to say it's it's that thing like when i look back at my 20s i was so easily led so trying to play up to what i thought i was supposed to be cuz that that would make press or this would do that and this would validate me but i was completely lost i just didn't happen to be in a pandemic i was just being an absolute idiot running around and to be honest i was quite ashamed sometimes that i was using that to influence people because it it's it was a downward spiral but cuz i was unaware of how unwell i was inside i didn't realize i was actually what I was putting out and how I was behaving was influencing other people but because I hadn't fixed me and understood who I was I wasn't even aware that I was doing that so it's a tough cycle you know the whole influencer kind of theme these days it's it's hard to influence on a positive note if you're unaware that you're not even feeling positive yourself
1: 100% so let's understand you a little bit more 1989 you're born in Hasselmere, Surrey let's start with your chartered first what was that like for you Jessica?
2: You know, my my young years were actually all right. We lived with my nan and granddad for a while, and then my mum and my real father we moved down to Surrey. And I don't actually have any recollection of them being together. Um, they broke up when I was really really young. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was just quite normal, really. My I had an older well, I still have, <laughs> I have an older half brother, um, just different dads. Um, and it was just me, my mum. And him really, and my nan was very important in our lives. She was always coming down because didn't. My mum didn't make much money because she didn't have much much eyesight. She could see, but she wasn't able to drive. So we was in this little village, and the school was opposite, so I could easily walk to school. But it was a good three mile walk to the nearest shop. And so nan would always come down on a Monday with food for us and make sure we was okay um, with granddad most of the time unless he was working. Um, so then, then early memories were quite cute because we didn't have as i said we didn't have money but we we had love and we had you know i had my best friend around the corner my mum was best friends of her mum and it was just kind of a community spirit i suppose
1: well, i love that so, so yeah because that's the thing and that the heart is that although you know people do have bad childhoods and i'm not disregarding that whatsoever fundamentally, as long as you're being cared for, as long as you've got shelter, as long as you're being fed, as long as you're being entertained slightly, you know, as you said, there's a silver lining at the end of
0: it.
2: Yeah, and we we didn't even know that we didn't have money. You know, we were kids just messing around (laughs) and being kids. Um, I suppose trauma didn't really start for me until I was about nine or ten. So we'd moved back to London when I was seven to live next door to my nan because mum had a new boyfriend. And then when they broke up, we moved back down to the village to another rented house. Um, and it was around that time that the, the trauma started to, to happen and things really, really shifted. Um, and that's when I witnessed a lot of domestic abuse um, towards my mum. I think at such a young age, 9, 10, 11, kind of that age, it's, it's, it's terrifying. You know, you're, you're, you're supposed to be being cared for and then suddenly you start feeling like you need to be the carer because you need to get these people off of hurting each other and you know it'd go on till late in the night and there'd be alcohol involved um and yeah I I think that caused a lot of problems in my older life because from from experiencing that and having to have units of police cars around maybe three times a week I wasn't able to learn like other kids because I was wasn't focusing and I couldn't focus and It wasn't ADHD. I wasn't causing trouble or shouting, but I I could not focus on anything. And if I was in trouble in class, I would be panicky and then it would make it worse. And yeah, I think when you have something like that so young, it wires your brain slightly different. And it wasn't until my later years, I'm talking like 27, 28, that when I was diagnosed with PTSD, all my life choices and my whole behavior made sense. So It was the most welcome diagnosis I'd ever had.
1: And for those that don't know, PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder, which is usually found uh, stereotypically in people who have been to war, for example. But you're right. It's a big, big trauma that you face. And it's interesting you internalised that and processed it and didn't act out. One would think you'd have gone, right, I'm nine years old. This to me is the norm. I'm used to this way. I'm used to people being punched and things being thrown that I'm going to carry on doing that because that's the way I've been socialised
2: yeah and i and i i do believe i took it into my future relationships because i i I, my idea of love was a bit warped at this point so i was i was you know dating people that didn't treat me very nicely or were a bit aggressive and as i say it wasn't until i kind of figured that out where you learn to break a cycle and that's why i read a lot because i find it so important to read other people's stories or books on psychology and you can kind of come to grips with it and then i think the main thing i've ever learned is awareness and once you're aware of something, that's when you can start to fix it. Hold on.
1: All right? I know we're having a very serious conversation, but I've just got to go a bit light for a second. You just said you enjoy <laughs> reading, right? I gave you a book, what, four years ago? Have you read that book yet?
2: Tony, I haven't. And I'll tell you why, because I've, I've lined everything up and then I kept getting these ones that were relevant to the things that were going on at the time and I, I, it's got pushed back. But I promise you, give me a month and I'm going to send you a big old email about how I love it.
1: I mean, we have got each other's numbers, but if you want to email me, email me. If you think that's where <laughs> okay. our relationship now is, four years later, and you don't want to just watch something like you normally do, then that's absolutely I'll fine. i okay, voice note you. i voice note you. That's more
2: familiar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so let's go, let's be serious. So you, you, you did grow up in a lot of trauma and there was a lot of fighting and obviously you don't want to reveal, and you, especially in your book, you don't reveal who the person was who uh, was causing the domestic violence to your mother have you since, though, had an apology from being surrounded by that? And has your mum had an apology more important for that person?
2: Um, I think in a, in a family, sometimes it's something that has been said, but unsaid, you know. Um, I think change behaviour normally is the biggest apology and that's what has happened. So to me, that's a win.
1: So have you got the closure you need? Because obviously you said that like 20 years later, you faced the PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder. But do you feel like you've got the closure that you can compartmentalise it now and go, right, this is what happened. I understand why it happened. I understand the triggers that led to said person acting out in rage. But I know, firstly, that's wrong. Secondly, they know it's wrong. And thirdly, I know for my sake, for my mum's sake, that that won't ever happen again.
2: Yeah, definitely. And... I think um, for me, the closure was, I mean, it took me a long time, but once I've figured out me and my brain, I could draw a line under that now. Um, it's not something, I you know, the person in question is far away, you know, so there's, when I see them, it's fine, there's no drama, but um, for me, it's now okay, we've all moved on. And if I carried on living in the past, um, and as I say, it's only okay if there is. Actual change behavior I mean, if that was to carry on that person would not have anything to do with me um but I think for me, the most important thing was to be able to move forward in my head as well because if i if I got stuck there that would I would never be able to get on with my life and I think for me, moving forward, thinking of my future and what I will and won't accept in my life is the biggest lesson out of all of that
1: hundred percent now, talking of lessons, you will go a bit lighter now, and then we'll go heavy again. Uh, you mm-hmm. decided you want to be an actress, and uh, it's interesting because obviously we know you fundamentally as reality star because it's always based on the first show you do, which for you was X on the Beach. But you had a whole acting career prior to that, and you trained at Italia Conti, one of the most renowned British institutes where so many people have come, including obviously Pixie Lot, your friend who was a year below you. What was Italia Conti like for you?
2: It was the most welcome, wonderful, amazing time so far of my life. I mean, I was doing what I loved every single minute of every single day. I was surrounded by kids in the same mindset as me wanting to dance, act and sing. I was surrounded by the most amazing teachers. I was just, I was so lucky and grateful to have a place there. And I worked my butt off for it. I knew I wanted to go. I knew that I had to improve because I hadn't been dancing my whole life. I needed to up my skills. So at my, school before i got into there i would on my lunch breaks and short breaks i'd be up in the gym in the dance studio um working out and trying to get myself to some sort of idea watching other people there's a girl that did ballet in my school before i went to italia and she would give up her break times to help me on technique and i just pushed and pushed and pushed and i think i knew i wanted it so much and i only knew that i was going to go there i didn't know how i was going to get in because i wasn't as talented as the other people at the time but i knew i was going to do it and i think sometimes you've got to have that in you to know that you want something and you're going to get it, and sometimes nothing can stop you. And I think that was how I got in. But it was the best, best time of my life. I, I treasure my memories of Italia Conti.
1: And it wasn't even just five days a week you were doing it on the weekends, you were getting the buses to go <laughs> to jazz in Covent Garden. Because for you, you immersed yourself in the acting profession. That's what you cared about. It's the only thing that mattered to you at that point in time.
2: Completely. I, I, that's all I did. I mean, even if I was at home on a Sunday, I'd be making up a play or making up a dance. Or, I, I didn't do anything else. That, that was all I did.
1: Although well, questionable, who you aspire to be like? David Jason, I think, is one of your go-to heroes from Only Fools yeah, and Horses. Yeah,
2: you know what? His, com- I mean, the female one, obviously, but his, um, his comedy timing is just phenomenal. And Julia Roberts is my other idol, and she, she, I think she's phenomenal. But for, like, I do, I do like a bit of comedy and um i've done a few sketches of it and put them out on instagram and stuff and i think once you can get someone that you've got a good comic timing with i think it's just you can really really make some magic and yeah i just um i just think he's brilliant because he just got that as dell boy it was just that's why it's lived on so long because it was just one of them phenomenal shows with such incredible casting that uh, i just never die
1: 100 percent. john sullivan was amazing Who created that So thus far, you've kind of got your life back on track. Obviously, you would experienced some trauma in the past. And you knew that you wanted to be an actress. You then get into Itali Conti. And life for you has found that silver lining. You're now working on towards that silver lining at the end of the tunnel to be a world-renowned actress, to follow in the footsteps of your hero, Julia Roberts. But then it gets to May the 18th, 2006. And you're sent a letter from Itali Conti offering you a full scholarship to graduate, which is incredible. But then other things happen in your personal life and you've got your professional career going one way and your personal life going the other way. What happened, Jess?
2: Yeah, that was a really horrible day, actually. The 18th of May, and it's one I'll never forget, 2006. Um, it was actually the day I got my letter for Italic saying you've got into the college so you can graduate on a full scholarship. And I wouldn't have been able to go if I didn't get that. So my day started off on the biggest high you can ever imagine. I'm 16, 17, no, 17, about to go into, into, you know, the now the BA honours degree for three years at my dream place. And I couldn't have been more happy. Um, I go, the day progresses and I'm looking after my nephew while my brother and his girlfriend are moving house. And he's 13 months old and he, he wasn't very well. It was like he had a bit of a cold. Um, and by midday, Lorreen, his mother, came and we're taking him down to the, to the doctors just to get him checked over. And the doctors were about 45 minutes late getting us in and the moment we walked in with him, his eyes kind of rolled back. The doctor grabbed him and put him on a ventilator um, and then rushed him up to the Guildford Hospital um, in an ambulance. And within four hours, I think four or five hours, he had died. He had meningitis and septicemia. Um, so that day... What happened at the beginning no longer mattered, and I'd just lost my baby nephew. Um, I couldn't quite compute in my head what had happened. That I mean, five hours before, I was playing with him, trying to make him feel better. Five hours later, he's not going to wake up again. And it was the most, um, I'm 17, and I've, I've experienced trauma, but things are getting better, and then whack, we got hit with that. And, I mean, I don't think that's something you can ever recover from, but you learn to manage and cope.
1: I don't know what to say to you, Jess. It's Unless you've been in that situation before, you'll never truly know what it's like. I don't want to obviously put your mind back there. I don't want to traumatise you even more. But what legacy did Charlie leave for you?
2: I think we've all grown up thinking of the idea that you don't die till you're old. And if it's anything before that, it's absolutely awful and shocking, and which it is. And I think the thing that I took from Charlie was you just never know. I mean, I, I can only say this now when I've done the work on myself because what happened after that with me, which we'll talk about, was was just a spiral. But now to look back, and I use this, I think Charlie showed me that you never know when your time is up and we have to appreciate this time on earth because it's not a given that you've got tomorrow.
1: 100%, 100%. And we've all got a purpose to do in the world. And it wasn't just Charlie in uh, in those 10 years who was affected and uh, who affected your life, I should say. Your mum also affected you because she became visually impaired and completely lost her sight. Something that you've been campaigning to help... Uh, people who are blind with blind dogs and guide dogs ever since what happened with your mum first of all
2: Yeah, so it wasn't it was only about six months after that when Charlie passed away that my mum's eyesight went she has a genetic disorder called UVL effusion syndrome but it's so rare that they they said you know you've got visual impairment but we we don't think anything bad will ever happen and then she it was after menopause that her eyesight just went very rapidly and then suddenly my mum's now blind and I'm I'm at theatre school trying to carry on with that also dealing with Charlie passing away in the summer before I went back to school and then it was all just it was all just very very traumatic and a lot to I mean it kind of brought back all the old stuff from the domestic violence and it was like one thing after the other after the other and at 17 I was like is this what life is then because to stop the world I want to get off it's just I, I don't know how to cope or deal with this I don't know what I'm supposed to do anymore and I don't like this What, what what's the point in this and that was my mindset because I, I couldn't understand why my friends I'll go around their house and they had this lovely happy life and their mums and dads around and everyone's happy and they're going away doing this and that and I'm coming home and my mum's depressed my mum can't see she can't even make herself a cup of tea because she's too scared my nephews just died my, my you know it was it was just I couldn't understand but like and it was almost difficult to come back home after going to stay the night at one of my friend's houses because I'd be so upset that I didn't get that calmness and um, I thought I really had to step up and kind of help my mum and therefore I obviously had to leave Italia Conti
1: and it was that lack of control that you had as well you couldn't control the surroundings not that you should have done because you at this point you are the child in the situation but when all this happens you've got absolutely no control
2: Yeah. And I think, I think the thing is now, like I've learned to just let go of any of that because you just, I think if the more we try to control things, the harder it is. So I think now I just kind of let things go and just go with the flow of things. And I know what I can do on my life to keep a structure of some sort, but I have kind of got the philosophy from all of that, that the more you try and control things, the harder it is. And that's what I was doing. I was trying to control my mum's emotions and make sure she was okay. And whilst I was doing all this and I was hiding the fact that I wasn't okay and that all came out in one big burst in the end.
1: Because the problem is, is that as much as it's your problem to an extent, it's actually your mum's problem and you're just a support system, but it does actually affect you. And even more so more than ever, because it's your mum who you look up to, who should be there to comfort you, not the other way around.
2: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I was quite, well, not sad, but I, I suppose the whole time it was, whether a parent knows it or not, when there's domestic violence as a, as a young age, the children witnessing it are the ones. I mean, I was very much always trying to help, and I was always I, I became very protective of my mum. So obviously, when this happened, I, I didn't even like going to school. I didn't like leaving my mum because I was always trying to be so protective. I was scared to leave her, um, not for for my benefit, but because I was worried about her and her safety. Um. So when I when it got to that she was blind, again it was me protecting and I think I was reading a book recently about it's called women who love too much and it's when you you get up your older relationships you're you're striving for that kind of that familiarity of how to love someone and that's how I kind of done in my relationship find people that was in need of something or need helping I didn't know how to be in a relationship that was normal and I think these things always go on to affect us in our later lives even if it doesn't show itself as that there's still an underlying of it.
1: If we talk about love quickly, what does love actually mean to you?
2: Oh, that's a good question, Johnny. Um, to me, I think now now I've gone through a lot of self-help, I suppose. Um, to me, it just means being there as a support system for someone. I feel like also it's caring for one another equally and, and respecting one another. I think I never used to re- really think of respect to be part of love, but now it's one of the main things for me.
1: And what scares you about love? You obviously got that protection there, but are you scared that you don't get that protection? Is there something else that scares you about being loved?
2: With love now, I don't think I'm scared of it. I think I've had my heart broken enough times and half the time I've been the main problem for breaking my own heart, I suppose, for expecting things that I shouldn't have or, or choosing the wrong people. But with me now, I generally think love doesn't scare me because I'm aware that, there's so many people in the world that are deserving of love that once you love yourself wholeheartedly enough you'll find the right person
1: i completely agree with you and obviously you've been through a divorce which we were not going to touch on it's not appropriate to but you've had your heart properly broken in many mm-hmm. ways and a lot of trauma that's come from that and you're right it's it's a very hard thing in the moment to realize that person wasn't right for you but when you take a step back you go look actually it was an experience and there were lessons learned. And you've always learned lessons and you've always re-found your purpose in life. And when your mum was visually impaired, you left the tally as you said, and you were helping your mum and her friends go to braille classes. Did you think this was your new purpose? That wasn't to be an actress, but to be, I suppose, an advocate for visually impaired people and this new way of campaigning for yourself?
2: yeah I will, when I say I mean the, the acting never left me and that's where I think I got a bit depressed because I wasn't doing anything for me that I loved anymore my spark was slowly going out and out and out because I was just missing it so much but I did find a sense of um pride in myself where I stepped up because I also learned a lot from people that I was surrounding myself with disabilities and um, other issues and I think that also helped me grow as a person. It wasn't just me helping other people at this point. I was learning so much from them that whether they knew it or not, I was being helped as well.
1: A hundred percent. A hundred percent, Jessica. Now, I just want to ask you as well, how do you, how do I word this? Basically, I want to get to the point about how one socialises with uh, someone who is visually impaired to know what the right and the wrong things are to say.
2: Yeah, do you know what? Me and my mum have actually had a discussion about this um, because sometimes we've met people in, in the street and someone will say, oh, how is she? And I'm like, she's just here. There's nothing wrong with her ears. Like, she can hear you. Just ask her, <laughs> like, ask my mum. And that kind of thing is, you know, it's it's almost a, it's very offensive to my mum. I think what I've always, what my mum's always said is, like, I'm a normal person. I just can't see. So if you see me struggling across the road, as you would an old, old person or someone had a, cram and they needed a bit of help across the road go and kind of say hi i'm i'm so and so and i can help you across the road if you need it i'm, I'm here and people are scared to that they don't want to offend but actually it's just the, just thinking of someone with visual impairment as just another person trying to cross the road they just can't see and if you know you can help you can help um my mum doesn't mind I'm talking about about it because it's part of her life just as we're talking about things that are part of my life blindness is part of hers And it's it's easy for her to talk about because she knows a lot about it now, you know, and she knows how she can help other people and she knows how to live life as a blind person now. So I don't think, you know, unless someone's being completely offensive and rude, there's not really anything she's unhappy to talk about.
1: Well, I did like the anecdote in your book, Silver Lining by Jessica Impiazzi, which spoke about the guy who didn't want to offend her and (laughs) uh, your mum had closed the door on him a hundred times.
2: Yes. Oh, it was so funny. So I'd pulled up outside the house and there's a wall where where you kind of walk on the path, but mum had opened the door on it. So she, she'd trapped him between my door, because normally I'm out the car, around and open the door to let her in. But unfortunately, she just thought she was going to be a bit ahead of me this day and just opened the door. And she's like, it's just not opening, but it doesn't... Like, she knew it wasn't a wall being smacked, but she was like, there's something there. Like, this man's face was of such horror... He just did not know what to do. And I, you know, I don't know if he knew she was blind or not. I don't know because obviously it's not something you can just tell straight away if someone's blind or not. And um, he just stood there. And I, I, the reason I started laughing was because his face was so shocked. He wasn't offended. He wasn't angry. He was just, it looked like he'd been reduced to a little boy and terrified out of his life. So I had to run, run around and just grab the door be like, I'm so sorry. And then he passed, but he didn't say a word. He just ran. Whereas, you know, these things always scare people and shock people because you don't want to hurt or offend anyone but i just wish people would get you know kind of realize it's like oh sorry i'm here because you know you don't know if someone can see or not or or all these type of things don't necessarily see but there will be a disability so sometimes just using our voices helps and i think people are often scared to do that
1: 100 percent and i think if you don't ever come across and you don't ever socialize with someone who's visually impaired there's someone on tiktok that i follow lucy edwards blind and mm-hmm. she's an incredible tiktok star she basically shows you what happens in her day-to-day life to break down these taboos so for example how does one know what's in a jar and she has a little magnet that goes over the jar that she's registered to say this is mint So how to make a cup of coffee how to use a button how to pick crisps um mm-hmm. How do you know when you're awake? How do you know what you should and shouldn't do using a teapot, for example? So, uh, like I said, uh, Lucy Edwards-Blind is an amazing TikTok channel to go to if you do want a bit of advice, if you do want to open up that conversation about what it's like to be visually impaired. So... Jessica, we're halfway there, and this is a really long podcast, but I think such an important podcast. You've already touched on so many important factors about domestic abuse, about visual impairment, about your acting career. But I suppose we need to talk about the real reason that a lot of us would have known you in the public domain, and that's because... To an extent, as long as most other things, you are a reality star. And you actually didn't start on the Beach. You were part of The Only Way is Essex, which I loved finding out. So (laughs) 2012, your first TV job, you're in the sugar hut with Mick, who loves his um, cherry pie. What was it like being in this new wave of reality TV, which was just before it really just went into its own new influencer domain on Instagram?
2: Yeah, it was was part of the sugar hut honeys, and then we just kind of would... Dabble in and out of filming with Towie and we just ran the events on the Friday nights at the Sugar Hut because it was so booming because of the show um but I loved it you know it was I wasn't I hadn't been at theatre school for a while I hadn't got an agent because I hadn't completed my school and it was just this vicious cycle but it kind of made me feel like look you're in front of a camera so let's just you know get some lemons and make lemonade kind of thing and I met some really cool people and people that have been really supportive of me up even to this day and I think that's where I'd pull that silver lining again it wasn't I wanted to do reality but it was the silver lining because I was getting to be in front of a camera and and learning a bit more about filming I suppose as well
1: and obviously as an actress it's very easy to want to control the whole mise-en-scene and the fact of yes you're worrying about what you are like on stage but equally it's also very much about what's going on around you with the cameras with the lights and to see how everyone works everyone that works in tv and radio you want to know how everyone else does their jobs as well as your job
2: exactly i find that really important i also find it very interesting and in fact a lot of that has helped me with since now in the future where i've now got my acting jobs I've, I've been able to know what the sound guy does and how he does it and where i should stand and it kind of gave me that that help as well, which I didn't learn at theatre school. Whereas, whereas I kind of learned kind of just watching other people. I'm a big people watcher on on jobs, and I think that's that's the main reason because I was like, I know I'll have to use this one day. I didn't give up the hope.
1: A hundred percent. Now, uh, talking of cameras, uh, you were also a bit of a glamour girl at Once Upon a Time as well.
2: Yeah, that that kind of stumbled across because that was probably at my lowest point because I. I had no hope of anything. I was just, I just lost any state of who I was and what I wanted. And I thought, I'll just try this because I need to validate myself somehow. And I thought that would validate me. I always felt like the ugly duckling at school. I never felt sexy. And I, I kind of tried to use this to be uh, like put on this new jest because the one, if I sat and dealt with, that would, it was going to be a very traumatic time. And I wasn't ready to do that at the time. And I thought, let's pretend I'm this big, glamour girl and I, i'm on all these magazines and yeah it was fun i i had i met some great people again but that's one thing i probably if i had my time again i probably wouldn't have done but as i say often that you can't always um regret you shouldn't regret anything because everything leads to something and i suppose i probably wouldn't have got the sugar hot honey if i hadn't have done the glamour modeling um but it just kind of flowed into each other you know so i i don't I can't say. Oh, it's a regret. It's a regret that I can I can Google it and see things, and I'm like, oh god, because it's just not me. And all I see when I look at those old, old pictures is someone that was so deeply depressed and hiding who she was.
1: I mean, it's the thing that you are literally standing there, completely butt naked, bare your breasts out, your bottom out, and yet. All your insecurities should go on the outside because everyone can see everything, yet the inside tells a whole different story.
2: Yeah, it it was inside out for me, completely that.
1: And if it was to happen now, in that time, do you reckon you'd have had an OnlyFans account and that it would have been more? Because I'm just thinking of the fact of doing page three at that time, it wasn't a bad thing. If you're doing Zoo or Loaded or Nuts or page three... It wasn't seen as seedy. It wasn't seen as bad. You know, most people, actresses as well, were encouraged to do that. Even if you didn't have your breasts fully yeah. out and you were covering it, it was absolutely fun. It was glamorized modeling. Whereas now we are seeing a massive surge of influencers, reality stars going on to OnlyFans and revealing a lot more, which would, if that had happened at your time, really detrimented your future. Whereas now it's like OnlyFans as a means to an end and we're not really thinking about the future from being on there.
2: Yeah, do you know what, though? I kind of see like I've got quite an open mind. Like, it's not for me because I know where I'm going now and I know what I want to do and what I'm going to stick to because I'd rather play the long game in a career that I want rather than just make a quick buck now. But, um, you know, some people, they're making so much money, they're paying off houses if that's what they want to do and they're comfortable with it, as long as they're not like me and using it as a a thing that they're going to regret. Because I knew from the beginning I did that, I would regret that. But if you're the different kind of mindset and you think, actually, I'm going to just pay off everything with this and do it. Well, I think good on them. I really think a lot of the time there's a lot of judgment in the world. And I think it's really unjustified because if someone's not hurting someone else, it is literally no one else's business. And that's that's the way I see things. Um, So for me, it just it just wouldn't work for me and where I'm going and what I want to do. But I really don't see a problem with anyone else wanting to do that as long as they're not detriment or hurting themselves in any type of way because of it.
1: 100%. And you said, obviously, it's on Google. If you did ever Google yourself, how does that sit with you now? Obviously, revenge porn is a massive thing now, and that's illegal where the consent hasn't been given But Mm -hmm. for yourself you obviously consented to those pictures of your breasts yeah. being out at the time but 15 years later how do you now look at those photos obviously you said that you've had a bit of regret and obviously lessons learned but do you see it as almost unconsented all these years after or are you like that was part of my journey let's just put it to bed
2: uh, yeah i can't just put it to bed i'm like I, as i say it, i see if i see any pictures which I never really do that i'm just like Oh, that that was a sad person back then. She was unhappy, and I don't really see it as me because my mind is so different. Um, so it's just like I look of a bit of sadness for myself, but not something that will be coming into my future with me.
1: Okay, well, let's move the topic up on the future because then you enter X on the Beach, 2015. The Tablet of Terror is, away, is <laughs> around the corner, and you're coming out the sea or that's filmed a different day and you walk along the beach and you get seen by everyone. What was your, <laughs> I loved when you told me that story. Um, what was the, your experience like on the MTV show? Cause X on the beach at the time was incredibly massive. That almost along with Geordie Shaw really justified the channel.
2: Yeah, it was huge actually. And I, I had a good time the first time I went on, but I was, again, I would just come out of a really awful relationship. And I'd gone straight on to X on the beach and I just, um, again, it was that, that getaway to not deal with what I was supposed to be dealing with, to fix myself, but I didn't know I was supposed to at that age. And I was on X on the Beach, and I thought, you know, I'm surrounded by cool people, young people, ex-boyfriend I actually like. Um, and it was just a getaway for me. Um, I enjoyed the first season, because also it was fresh and new. There was no expectations. We didn't really know what show it was. They hadn't told us what show it was. Um, it was a dating show, and I thought, sod it, let's just let's just go for it. This, this could be a laugh, and it's going to get me away from whatever crap I'm doing not dealing with or dealing with right now Um, and I just went away and I had a good time I made decisions I regret but you know I was 23 and I drank heavily on that show and you know nothing can be done about it but I I don't look back and hold that first season with any any sadness I just think you know that I was young but I I understand how now I have to really work doubly hard to get myself on track for my acting again and I think that will be a constant struggle but I will prove myself
1: 100% and it's interesting you said that uh, about the tv show because obviously for those that don't know those that signed up in the original series were told it's a dating show and you weren't told it was x on the beach you just end up on there obviously now it's very different and you're actively being told it's x on the beach and certain individuals want to be influencers so they do go on x on the beach knowing what to expect because they want to be part of the you know, reality tv uh, massiveness mm-hmm. but for you at the time, it was, you were going on a dating show. You obviously find out your ex is there. And uh, Rogan O'Connor is someone you were doubling in and out of. How did you find having that relationship play out on TV? Um,
2: I, It was so new for me. It wasn't like how TOWIE had filmed. And I didn't really do much of TOWIE. So it was kind of new. But it was just fun. I think it was just young, fun, silly... Not love because we definitely weren't in love, but it was we were familiar with each other, and it was like we were in the villa with strangers, and then suddenly you're you with your ex, and it's just it was just on just fun. I think I think that's all I can explain. As you know, it it was like going on a group holiday for free at twenty three years old, and I think a lot of people do that. Just happened to be on camera, um, but we had a young, cool camera lot and producers and. Yeah, I just I don't regret. I mean, as I say, with, with the acting stuff, it probably has hindered things, but it was also to me a platform. I may never have got into acting at all again if I didn't complete a tally of Conti. If I didn't have this, so we don't know how things would be different. So we can't really regret. I think so. No, I, I just had a good time on there. It was, as I say, I made a few silly mistakes that will unfortunately stay on telly, but. Um, no, it was just it was just fun, Johnny.
1: And one of those mistakes was having sex on TV. And in preparation for this interview, I watched your interview you did for the Victoria Derbyshire show on mm-hmm. uh, the BBC uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, I, I, I suppose, if, if actually, I think if it's best coming from you rather than me trying to set it up. The producers try to encourage you to have sex on TV. There was that pressure. It was a programme around sex.
2: Yeah, see, that was on the next series, and I went back for the all Star Series 5, and I noticed a very, very big shift in the way things were being filmed. So Series 2, there wasn't that pressure. It was very much natural and organic. And I think reality TV was liked a lot better when it was like that. But as you said earlier, with the, it, it became suddenly a, a go on reality TV and become an influencer – when I first went on X on the Beach, that wasn't a thing. Instagram had just happened. I didn't even have Instagram when I first went on it, I don't think. or oh, I did, but it wasn't a big thing where that happened. There was no sponsored posts or any of this. So when I went back for Series 5 all those years later, that had now evolved. And I think everyone wanted to play up to, to make sure they would come out of it the most famous or the most following, and they knew how to do that via social media by the way they behaved on the show. And I think the producers had kind of got that into their heads a bit as well and knew what would make great TV and more viewings. And it was more, I think I think the, the actual thing that was said was um, lots of shagging tonight, please girls. And I was like, you yeah, know, I just can't do this. Like this is, when it happened on series two, Rogan was my boyfriend, we were both drunk and we were hid under the covers and it kind of just like happened quick. so I was like, okay, we should stop. I think you hear me even say, oh, I'm so disappointed in myself. And then we stopped cause I realized we were on camera. <laughs> Um, so fast forward when someone's saying oh that was what should be being done I was like no I don't I'm older now I don't agree with this and the amount of fear that put into me when I knew that was going to air from the first time I went on I was like I don't think this is right this isn't fair for young people that are coming on this show I just don't think this is right um, and yeah that that was my kind of I was done and I left the show early
1: and what do you think about reality TV now? I mean, obviously, Love Island, we've got the shag Pad, and Celebs Go Dating is coming back and they've got a shag Pad as well now, that we're still seeing producers see that sex is the ultimate way to be the star reality star on their own programme, whereas for us, actually, it's all about the feelings and watching an organic relationship blossom without the sex.
2: Yeah, see, I think Love Island stopped showing it, someone said to me. They stopped showing the actual sex scenes. But I completely agree here. Like, this is something... I don't know how people can't see it when they make these shows, and I mean, no disrespect to any producers or anything, but when you look back at reality, people loved it when you had the Amy Charles characters, the fun, the comedy, and the legitimate... When When it's legitimate, as a viewer, you see it evolve... But when you're forcing like something to happen, it's so obvious to viewers. And I, I mean, I can see that when I watch reality. If you're trying to force something, it's just you don't warm to it and therefore you don't you don't believe in it or you don't... I think to make a good TV show, you have to, even if it's acting or whether it's reality, you have to want your character to win. The person you're watching, you want them to win. You want them to do well. You want them to get their heart fixed. You want them to fall in love. And when it's not legit, it's like, oh, you just got to have sex. It's boring. Anyone can go and do that. But the, the true story is that... The truth within it the love the ups the downs and and hopefully the success at the end of it
1: and also the identification of that could be me you know not all of us are running around having sex with everything that breathes with a pulse and not all of us would be watching it going oh hey that's me i'm a lad you know it's not a stereotypical program that the big lad who gets over girls who's a rugby player would be watching anyway so you do want that desertification but also the identification that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to be me, and uh, you know, be like a Doctor Alex George, who is hopeless at finding love.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's when, where it may have gone a bit wrong now, but but also because the people going on it are trying to see themselves as influences afterwards, so they're going in rushing into things where it just makes it not so legitimate, and you don't invest in the characters. I think that's the main thing you got to do is invest in characters from their truth, not from trying to put something on to be a. A big star sort of thing.
1: Of course. And obviously it goes back to the beginning of the conversation about the true character that they sometimes come away thinking that they are an influencer and they're getting everything for free and they're going on holidays for free and they're getting all their clothes for free. But the reality of being an influencer is very different. A lot of the time you are self-employed and although you might be going from show to show to show... The reality is 98% of the reality stars that we now know, you know, Love Island has about 40 people each year. If you think that's now on average, about 250 people have been in the villa, Uh, X on the Beach is 10 series, and that's, you know, about 20 people a series—that's that's 200. So you've got already growing uh, about 1,000 influencers, reality stars that are Mm -hmm. all self-employed, that their only income is disposable through effectively their paid sponsorships. It's not all... Rosie, out there
2: exactly and it's a like you said it's a conveyor belt of people it's only the the select few there's probably only about 10 love islanders i can actually remember fully from that and they've carried on to do other things but also even that at that, that point if you come out of it and become one of their biggest stars it still dries up eventually because the shows stop you run out of reality tv shows to carry on going on you you know you may have the backing of your social media but in what five years time is that still going to be there because i know mine dropped a lot since i've changed past and you know you can't rely on it so i think it's it, it can be quite if, if you know it you just want to earn a quick buck and you have something else fine but i think a lot of the time if you don't it can be quite a risky road
1: and that duty of care on that risky road obviously you did slept a big brother in 2018 as a grown-up effectively now have you noticed mm-hmm. that change in the duty of care that they were giving you then obviously this was before we saw the sad passings on love island stars but yeah. for you growing up did you see actually they as an adult now i'm being spoken to in a certain way that i know what is right and what is wrong now compared to when you did x on the beach and you were in your early 20s and you're a bit more naive to the situation
2: yeah, definitely, and I, I think that's just something that comes with growing up anyway, isn't it? It's something where you start to think, hang on a minute, I don't agree with that. That doesn't align with me anymore. Um, but I know on So Brother, I definitely had a great duty of care. They, they had a great um, psychiatrist that I got to see quite a lot of the time, um, and that had stepped up. But since then, I haven't done any more reality TV, so I, I, I'm completely unaware of what it's like now. But um, I think, yeah, as a as a grown-up mind of my own, I definitely could see what i felt aligned with me and if i felt something was off i'd say can i speak to the psychiatrist and they'd get you up to the diary room and you go and speak to him and i think the care was quite rapid in big brother they were really great at channel five with that
1: and final question for you jessica in Piazzi. you <laughs> like myself are very spiritual and you love sharing inspirational quotes like i do so what inspirational quote sums up silver linings for you
2: easy question for me i think it's um a seed has to break before it can become a tree and i think dr wayne dyer said that and it just i just love it because it's like it's telling people just because you break that sometimes when you break that's where you get your 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 best part from it is your shoot up you know your your tree starts to grow you can find all the bits that aren't healed heal them and start growing and so a seed has to break
1: before it can become a tree And just to add to 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 that as well, on your tree, we all have many branches. We've all got different personality traits, character Mm -hmm. traits. We've all got different journeys we've been on. If we are the tree that's being grown, we're going to have different branches that we're going to be going on to. But we've always got the same root and the same stalk. So your branch will always come back to the real you. Chapter 15 is your last chapter, Jessica. If you could add another chapter now, chapter 16, what would you call it and what would you include in it?
2: I would think it would be um, because I actually have started writing another book just to talk about more of the tools that I use each and every day and like to kind of better myself and understand myself. And I think if I had to put that on the end, it would probably be a chapter about awareness. Once you become aware of yourself and I would do more of a self-help kind of style rather than my story and the silver lining. Now I want to give people the tools of finding that in the first place.
1: And it's really important to be aware of yourself. And it's something we always forget. Our minds and our thoughts are very different to the real us. And we sometimes get eaten up, especially if you've faced depression before. And if you're thinking, you know, you're overthinking something, that thought isn't the real true you. That's just your Mm -hmm. fault. And sometimes it's as simple as meditating and washing away that thought, going, I can see that thought. I'm aware of you, but I'm not going to have yeah. you today. I'm going to get rid of you today. You're not going exactly. to be part of my emotions now.
2: Yeah, we, we have one thing that was the most poignant thing to me, I suppose, was learning about the monkey mind and that you kind of, if you just leave your thoughts to swing from branch to branch to branch, you could end up anywhere. We have to learn to control those thoughts. And that's one of the most important things I do each and every day. And I meditate because that's how you learn to control your thoughts. And there's so many amazing apps to help you with it, but I've been meditating for about three years now and it's probably been one of the most amazing things to anchor those thoughts and kind of be in control of them rather than them being in control of you.
1: 100% and even just a simple, if you don't even want to meditate, but just a simple exercise of breathing in for four seconds, holding it for seven seconds, breathing out for three seconds and repeating that a couple of times Mm -hmm. will just de-stress you. Jessica in her book Silver Lining is out now. I urge you to buy it. We've touched on so many of the stories in there, so many of her experiences in there, be it domestic abuse, be it about visual impairment, being about being an influencer and a reality star it's so important you go and buy her book because it really will help you if you do identify with anything you've heard in today's conversation and also if you are affected by what you've heard please do contact refuge if you've faced domestic violence before their numbers 0808 2247 website nationaldahelpline.org.uk. or the samaritans if you've ever felt depression you've felt a bit suicidal samaritans.org 116123 is their phone number you've been listening to security if you've liked what you heard please do rate the podcast and give it a five star rating i really need your help to make this podcast successful so leave a five star rating and leave a comment remember this podcast can't be successful without your help well i'm trying to say it's okay to not be okay and we're also on instagram securely insecure podcast is where you can find us every day you get a different teaser of a previous episode and you get an inspirational quote, and also there's a conversation there, so there'll be a conversation about this episode as you listen to it, which you can go on and add your own thoughts about what you think the silver lining is for you, and what you want it to be. You've been listening to Security and Secure with me, Johnny Sifa. Until next time, thank you, and goodbye.